morning, church. It's good to see you. It's good to have our guests with us. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, many of the Christians around you are in a very ungodly state already this morning because there's a dunk tank after the service and they are already anticipating me being dunked in it. <laughs> Who laughed? What kid laughed? Uh-huh. Uh-oh, there's an uprising. Children, ch sorry. You can mock me all you want. No, you can't. You can come and laugh at me here shortly. But let's get into God's word first this morning. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, as we return to our study of the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew 6. We're in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and today... We are embarking on a six-week study of Jesus' teaching here on prayer. So six weeks for us to learn about and grow in prayer. And it seems like a good place to begin would be to be praying. So would you please join me in prayer? Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege to gather like this, to sing to you, to approach boldly your throne of grace. I ask now that you would help us to take your word to heart, to hear it, to receive it. We invite you now, teach us to pray. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, of all the things the reformer Martin Luther was known for, among the foremost was his dedication to prayer. His friends and his students attested to Luther's fervent daily prayers once he was asked what he would do the next day. And his famous reply was, work, work from early till late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. He's a lot like you and me, right? <laughs> Luther was a man of prayer. Actually, his example is uh, inspiring and discouraging at the same time. Most of us are not like Luther in this regard. When was the last time you spent three hours in prayer? And was that on your busiest day? As one author on prayer noted, stories like this one of Luther can turn our bones to jelly because we are not like that. But Luther was not just a saint in prayer. He also struggled with it as well. So here's another quote from Luther. Let's put him in perspective here. At perhaps the busiest time of his busy life, he wrote to his dear friend Philip the following. You extol me so much. Your high opinion of me shames and tortures me since, unfortunately, I sit here like a fool and hardened in leisure, pray little. Do not sigh for the church of God. In short, I should be ardent in spirit, but I am ardent in the flesh, in lust, laziness, leisure, and sleepiness. Already, listen to this if you're discouraged about your prayer life, already eight days have passed in which I have written nothing and in which I have not prayed or studied. This is partly because of the temptation of the flesh and partly because I am tortured by other burdens. Even prayer warriors like Luther struggled with prayer just like the rest of us do. Consider the 12 apostles. These guys spent over three years being discipled by Jesus. Eventually, they became the pillars of the church. And yet, 
they found themselves struggling to pray on more than one occasion. For instance, Matthew 26 records that on the eve of Jesus's death, on the very night of his betrayal, he confessed to his friends, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. This was Jesus's call to prayer. And so what did these men do? They closed their eyes, they bowed their head and they fell asleep. If you've ever nodded off in prayer, remember the apostles have done the same. If you struggle with prayer, so did Luther. If you struggle with prayer, so did the apostles. And if you struggled with prayer, I'm there with you. The fatherhood series that I just preached through was in me like the fire inside Jeremiah's bones. Do you remember that passage, Jeremiah 20, verse nine? Speaking of the prophetic word God had given him, he said, it is like a burning fire shut up in my bones and wearies me to hold it in. Indeed, I cannot. That's kind of how I felt about the fatherhood series. It was just in me. It was a fire that God had put inside me and it burned inside of me and I couldn't keep it in. But here we're going to spend six weeks studying prayer, not because it's a burning fire in my bones, but because prayer is more like a smoldering wick for me. And I suspect for so many of you. And I want to invite you to join me in asking God to fan the flame of prayer in us. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. This is what the church should be. Among other things, it is a house of prayer. And by Acts, two, Acts chapter two, we read that the church in Jerusalem was devoted to the apostles' teachings, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Listen, if you struggle in prayer like I do, then take encouragement with me from the same apostles who nodded off in prayer. They went on to build a church devoted to and fueled by prayer. Every problem the early church encountered was met with prayer. They did not go searching for answers. They did not have strategizing meetings. They got on their knees, or more likely, they stood and lifted their hands and they prayed. What changed these guys from men who nodded off in prayer to men who stood in prayer? What changed them? How did these disciples grow in praying? The difference was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the gospel that leads us to pray and revitalizes our prayer life. How is that? It's the fact that Jesus is alive now in heaven and hears our prayers. It's the fact that Jesus died for our sins, rose again, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. It's the fact that through Jesus' death, he has opened up for us a new and living way to God. It's the fact that Jesus is our great high priest, and so we can approach boldly the throne of God's grace to make our troubles known and get the help we need. Jesus is the difference maker in prayer. And if he can open a way to heaven for sinners, if he can get us backstage passes to the throne of grace, if he can secure our adoption as children of God's own, if he can transform hearts of stone to flesh, then he can certainly kindle our desire to pray. Matthew 12, verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. 
Throughout church history, the Lord's Prayer has played a central role in the discipling of Christians. For almost 2,000 years, if you were new to the faith, the first things you would be instructed on are the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. You were instructed on what to believe, how to behave, and how to commune with God. These were the basics, and we were meant never to move on from the basics, only to build on top of them. So the Lord's Prayer has always been a central, played a central role in church history, and in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here, it plays the central role. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Matthew, so let's do a little review here. Look back with me at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Here Jesus calls us to a greater righteousness, one that is required to enter his kingdom. Verse 20. For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is the big idea of Jesus' sermon. This is his main point. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees he's talking about, they took pride in how religious their life looked. Outwardly, they looked righteous. But inwardly, their hearts were far from God. Jesus is saying his disciples have to be different. They have to have both outward righteousness and inward righteousness. Their outside and their inside need to match. And that is the greater righteousness that he requires. So then he goes into Matthew 5, 21 through 48. That's this whole next section we, we've already studied through, 21 through 48, where Jesus gives us six examples of what this righteousness looks like in our relationships. In our relationships. Don't be angry. Don't lust. Don't divorce. Don't break your word. Don't retaliate. And don't hate your enemy. Six examples of what a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees looks like in our relationships. Then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, he gives us three examples of what this righteousness looks like in our religious life. So the first six dealt with people, righteousness as it relates to people. These next three relate to righteousness in our religious life or in our piety. And they are giving, praying, and fasting. Giving, praying, and fasting. Now, just like the rest of Jesus' sermon, chapter 6 is highly structured. Uh, there's the introduction to this section in verse 1. This is kind of like the sub-theme of this section. He says, chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your what? Your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So here's something interesting. A very literal translation of this verse would be, watch out that you do not do your righteousness in front of people in order to be theater to them. Theater to them. The Greek word for seen here is where we get our word theater from. Jesus is warning against a, a theatrical righteousness, a performance-based religion. One way, we live in front of people one way, but then behind closed doors, we're something else. And this is followed with the three examples, each starting with the Greek word hotan, which is translated with. So verse two, when you give, or not with, translated when, when you give to the needy, that's example one. Verse five is example two, when you pray. Example three, verse 16, 
when you fast. If you want to go on and study all this chapter later this week or later today, notice the repeated words he uses too. We'll, we'll notice these throughout our study today, but hypocrites reward and father. In each one of these examples, he comes back, do not be like hypocrites. Look at the real reward. And this is all playing out before your father. One last observation in all this. The Lord's Prayer, then, which is at the center here, is an excursus directly in the middle of this section. It flows naturally out of his example about prayer. He's expanding and expounding on the topic of a prayer and positioning it right in the middle of this section is not only natural because he's talking about prayer, but it is significant because it places it in the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount. There's some, in the Greek, there's something like 114 lines on one side and 112 on the other. So the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount is this prayer. And this is intentional. It teaches us that prayer is at the very heart of the kind of righteousness Jesus is after. Prayer is at the very heart of the righteousness Jesus is after. It plays a central part in the Sermon on the Mount and it plays a central part in the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now the Lord's Prayer itself, many of you familiar with it, stretches from our Father in heaven to our enemy below. It goes from God to Satan, from heaven to hell, and it teaches us six brief petitions that cover everything in between. And this is Jesus's model prayer, and we'll begin studying it in detail next week. But Jesus doesn't just instruct us on what to pray, that's the Lord's Prayer, but also how to pray and why we pray. Jesus wants us to pray the right way and for the right reasons, and that's what he teaches us in verses 5 through 8, our text today. This is in Jesus's instruction on prayer. So the title of my message today, if you're taking notes, is When You Pray. When you pray, that comes right out of verse 5, and notice it's an assumption Jesus does not teach prayer is something we should do. Jesus assumes prayer is something we do do. So prayer is not just for the super spiritual. It's not for the, the Martin Luthers of life or the George Muellers of life or the prayer warriors of life. Prayer is not just for pastors, though pastors and pastors here, we should set the example in it. Young people, Prayer is not just something you do when you get older, though you should pray when you are older. Prayer is something every true Christian does. There's no such thing as a non-praying Christian. You cannot be a Christian and not pray. Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8, this is the word of God, and it is eternally true. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you.
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. May the Lord now bless the preaching of his word. According to Jesus in this text here, there are two big no-nos when it comes to prayer. If you want an outline for today, Jesus is two big no-nos for prayer. How's that? It's the most formal outline I've ever given you. Two big no-nos, two things Jesus says we are not to do when we pray. Do not be like the hypocrites and do not be like the pagans. So point number one this morning, don't be like the hypocrites. Jesus does not want us to be like hypocrites when we pray. Verse five and six again. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. You must not, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. The Greek word translated hypocrite here means more literally a performer, a play actor, a stage actor. In ancient drama, actors didn't wear makeup, they wore masks. And by Jesus' day, this could be used as a, a negative slang against someone, a negative term against someone to describe someone who pretends to be something that they're not, someone who plays a part, someone who's a pretender, someone who's an actor, someone who, whose outward actions mask who they truly are. It's the declared vegan that devours bacon in secret. It's the champion of family values that goes and has an affair. And it's professing Christians that practice their faith one way publicly, but then another way privately. He goes to church to worship, but does not worship in the closet in his prayer. He sits under the word preached, but does not study the word in private. He talks about God in community group, but not to God in fellowship. Michael Reeves has said that prayer is disgustingly revealing. Prayer is disgustingly revealing. For all our talk of faith and of doing good deeds, our prayer life reveals how, how much we actually want to commune with God and how much we actually depend upon God. Our prayer life tells us how immature we actually are, how little we actually love the Lord, and how much of a hypocrite we actually are. Prayer can be disgustingly revealing, or I should say the lack thereof can be. It unmasks us to reveal who we truly are. So ask yourself this morning, what does your prayer life reveal about you? What does your prayer life reveal about you? What does it reveal about the actual health of your relationship with God? And you must be honest with yourself if you hope to grow in godliness. Our prayer life reveals who we truly are. Now, I have two extended things I want to say about hypocrisy here, two pastoral discourses I want to go on. First, to some degree or another, we all struggle with hypocrisy. Just like we all struggle with prayer, we all struggle not to pretend that we're better than we are in front of others. 
And I don't want to minimize the fact that we are all guilty of this and need to repent. But there are some of you who really struggle with this. And I mean really struggle with hypocrisy. And if you are worried that I'm talking about you, that I somehow know about you, that I'm trying to out you, that I have you in mind, whether I have you in mind or not, I am talking to you. You act one way here at church and another way around your family or around your friends. You have a reputation here and you care about that reputation. You care about how you are perceived, but at home, your family knows who you really are or your friends know who you really are. None of them are fooled. And in love, I wanna tell you, neither is God. He sees and he knows the real you. Psalm 139, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. You struggle with hypocrisy, here it is, because you do not fear the Lord. But God will not be mocked. I know your works, says the Lord. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Friend, if this word addresses you today, if you hear God's voice in this, do not harden your heart. Repent and return to him with your whole heart. Cry out to him for mercy, and he will restore your soul completely. For who is there like our God? He pardons transgressions. He passes over iniquity. He delights to show mercy. He will take all your sin away. He will take all your shame and throw them into his sea without bottom or shore. We sing it, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. God is calling you to repentance because he wants to restore your soul completely today. So I beg of you, I call you, return to him with your whole heart. But if you won't, if you refuse to repent, if you are determined to stay hidden in your hypocrisy, then I, I turn my appeal to your spouse or your children, those attached to you, I speak to you now, those of you attached to a habitual hip hypocrite, do not lay down like a doormat. Do not accommodate their deception. Do not settle in and just make the best of it. Come and get help. Unrepentant sin is a pastoral issue. This is a pastoral problem.
Jude 1.12 says, These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear. Like shepherds carrying only for themselves clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. If you live with an unrepentant hypocrite, you need not, you need not go this alone. Come and get help from your pastors. Now, I said I had two pastoral things I wanted to say about hypocrisy, so I'll turn now to the second. The second I wanted to say is let's make sure we know what hypocrisy really is. Sometimes Christians think hypocrisy, hypocrisy is doing one thing, but feeling another. That's not hypocrisy. When you engage in, let's just like break down all the barriers right now and talk honestly with each other like adults for a minute. When you engage in marital intimacy, even though you do not feel like it, that is not hypocrisy. That's loving service. When you come to church, but do not feel like it, that's not hypocrisy. That's faithfulness. This is important because I hear this as a pastor sometimes. They'll say, I'd be a hypocrite to stay in this marriage because I don't love them anymore. Or I'd be a hypocrite to come to worship because I don't feel like worshiping. Or I would be a hypocrite to pray because I don't feel like praying. I want you to hear me on this. Doing the right thing, even when you do not feel like doing it, is not hypocrisy, it's maturity. Doing the right thing, even when you don't feel like it, is not hypocrisy, it's maturity. Hypocrisy is professing one thing in public and acting another way in private. That's hypocrisy, and it is not to be confused with maturity. So, back to prayer and hypocrisy, back to Jesus' main point here. I want to use an analogy I heard Kevin DeYoung use once before uh, talking about hypocrisy. Our prayer life should be like an iceberg in the ocean. What others see should just be the tip of a great mass of prayer and communion with God that lies underneath in our private life. Our prayer life should be like an iceberg, not like iceberg lettuce <laughs> that floats on the top with nothing underneath. For some of you, that's the only thing you're going to take away from this sermon today, but that's fine. And I give Kevin DeYoung all the props for it. Your prayer life should be like an iceberg, not iceberg lettuce. There should be a lot more to your worship than what people see here and in community group. This should just be the tip of the iceberg. So much more should be happening in your room, behind closed door, in secret, with your father. And here is the real motivator. Here is the righteous reason we pray. Jesus says, verse six, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Let me ask you, coming out of the fatherhood series, what is a child's real reward from their father? What is a child's real reward from their father? It's not stuff. Not really. What a child really wants, what is a real blessing from his father, a child's true reward is his father's closeness, his father's nearness, his father's companionship. This is the real reason we pray. Prayer 
prayer is nearness to God. Prayer is nearness to God. All right, turning to no-no number two, turning to the second thing Jesus says not to do in prayer, don't be like the pagans. Don't be like the pagans. Look with me at verse seven. Jesus says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. The word Gentiles here is translated in other versions as pagans. Jesus isn't just talking about an ethnicity of people here. He's talking about people who do not truly know God. How do they pray? With many words. The Roman philosopher Seneca spoke of tiring the gods out, wearying the gods with our prayers. The idea is actually to prove your sincerity through many words. And to this day, Orthodox Jews recite the Amidah three times a day. Muslims recite prescribed prayers five times a day. Hindu and Buddhist prayers especially rely on a repetition of words. Some Buddhists even use prayer wheels, if you've heard about these, where you attach your prayer to the wheel, and they may have dozens of these wheels in a row, and then you spin the wheel, or you go along spinning the wheel, and each time it rotates, it's like a, a, your prayer being offered again to the gods, so you're kind of multiplying your prayers out this way. In each case, repetition, or many words, is the key to prayer. Many words heaped on top of each other. But Jesus teaches us here that that's not how prayer works. In verse 7, he says, don't heap up empty phrases. The King James has it, use not vain repetitions. You could also trace it, tra uh, translate it, don't talk on and on and on, or don't babble on and on. God is not impressed with our many words. He is not impressed by them, and neither does he need them. Luther, again, is helpful here, commenting on this verse. He says, God knows, has no need of such everlasting twaddle. There's your quote for the day. God has no need of our everlasting twaddle. Do not be like them, Jesus says. Do not be like the pagans, verse 8, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, Jesus is not against praying for long times. He spent all night praying. He would pray for extended periods of time. What he's against is many words heaped on top of each other, praying long prayers just to be heard, just to prove your sincerity, just to prove, I'm really praying, I'm really serious about this one. God does not need that because God already knows our needs. If our father already knows what we need, then it's a good question to ask, well, well then why pray to him at all? Okay, he doesn't need my many words because he already knows what I need. But if he knows what I need, why should I pray at all? And I can think of at least two reasons. First, because God uses prayer. God is pleased to use prayer. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. Being God, he does not need us to pray. Our prayers don't inform him of what's going down here on the ground. Oh God, do you not, maybe you didn't know this, Lord, but my wife is just doing this, or my child is doing this, and God, you probably, maybe you're so busy up there, Lord. And God does not need our in-the-ground intel. He knows what's going on. And God does not need our prayers as if they somehow empowered him to act, you know? Like prayer power is kind of like, you know, tinging God up. I've got prayer power. Now you've prayed enough. I can act on your behalf. No, prayer is a means, and God is pleased to use means. Listen, here it is. God can save you in a car crash by sending an angel, but he usually uses the means of your seatbelt. 
God can give you money by directing a billionaire to randomly bless you, but usually he uses the means of a job. Our sovereign God is pleased to ordain means through which he's pleased to work. And one of those means is prayer. And this is why we should pray to our father, even though he already knows what we need. A second reason is because prayer is relational. Prayer is relational. And this is one, and this is the one Jesus has most in mind in this passage. This is, in fact, the other great motivator to pray in this passage. It complements the first. Think about it. It's the people who know you best that you are closest with. And it's the people who know you best that you talk most freely with, that you open your heart up to. It's your spouse, it's your parents, it's your best friend. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, your father knows what you need. Your father knows you. He knows you. Better than you know yourself, your father knows you. Listen, have you screwed up in a royal way? And are you afraid to go to God because he's so holy and you're not? You're ashamed to approach his holy throne? It's exactly because he already knows your needs that should encourage you to come and speak freely, to open up about what you did and why, because he already knows. Do you have like a really big need, a huge ask of God that you're afraid to make known to him? Or maybe you have a small thing, a small little desire and you wonder, Maybe this is like a selfish desire, you know? Like, it's just a, it's just a, a little bit of a, I don't know. But I, and you're afraid to ask God. <laughs> he already knows. God already knows. He knows what you want and what you need better than you do. So open up to him. Talk freely with him. That he already knows is a powerful motivator to open up your heart to him, to draw near to him, because prayer is relationship, not ritual, because it's communion, not ceremony, because it's personal, not protocol, because prayer is friendship, not formality. One of the longest chapters in John Calvin's classic work, Institutes of the, the Christian Religion, is his chapter on prayer. And in these passages, Calvin emphasizes God's kindness manifested in the gift of prayer and especially the essential nature of prayer as intimate or what he calls familiar conversation with God. Prayer is familiar conversation with God. That's why we pray, to talk with our Father in heaven. So in conclusion, let me get practical. Let me get practical. We're going to have six weeks talking about prayer, so we have lots of time to talk about practice of prayer. But let me, let me get practical here. Now that you are informed about how Jesus wants us to pray and why we should pray, let me get practical about the doing of prayer. A little 
teasing into the rest of the series. And I'll do so by returning to where I started with Martin Luther. In 1535, Luther's barber and longtime friend, Peter Best Beskendorf, asked for suggestions on how to pray. Luther responded by writing an open letter, which he called a simple way to pray. A simple way to pray. You can find it online. Personally, I've benefited a lot from it. I'll just sum up a few points. After sharing a few introductory thoughts about preparing your heart to pray, Luther launches into a tutorial on how to pray first through the Lord's Prayer. And this is what he says. First, he recommends reading through the prayer once. So just read through it once, he says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. First, he recommends reading through the prayer once. And then he recommends going back through the prayer, line by line, letting each petition guide our prayer. So, after our Father in heaven, our who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, we continue to pray, yes, Father. It's my great desire that your name would be feared and revered in all the earth. You see, you're, you're just riffing here. You're just going with whatever comes to your mind about this topic. You are God. You are the maker of the things we cannot comprehend. You're saying, Jace, is this how you pray in the morning when you haven't had your coffee and you're just starting in prayer? Are you raising your hands and yelling? Well, kind of like in my soul, I do it. I make myself. Do I feel that way? No. Is that hypocrisy? No, that's me disciplining myself. This is what I should care about. You are God. You are the maker of things we cannot comprehend. You are wisdom and all creation displays your strength and beauty. And yet you are also mercy who gave your only begotten son to save me from your own wrath for my sin. We just work through the Lord's prayer like that line by line. And in this way, the Lord's prayer not only informs what we pray, but it becomes a fence in which our prayers can run wild. Do you ever find yourself distracted in prayer? I do. My thoughts turn to what I need to do that day, to the movie I watched last night, to the topic I need to talk about with Jenny, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love who I'm trying to pray to. And Luther addresses this problem in prayer, uh, distraction, in his paper when he writes to the barber, remind you. He says, a good and attentive barber keeps his thoughts, attention, and eyes on the razor and hair and does not forget how far he has gotten with his shaving or cutting. If he wants to engage in too much conversation, this is a distraction, or let his mind wander or look somewhere else, he's likely to cut his customer's mouth, nose, or even his throat. This is Luther. Thus, if anything is to be done well, it requires the full attention of one's senses and members. As the proverb says, he who thinks of many things thinks of nothing and does nothing right. Luther concludes, how much more does prayer call for concentration and singleness of heart if it is to be a good prayer? This, Luther goes on to say, is why he uses the Lord's Prayer when he prays. Our minds are prone to wander, so let every petition of this prayer be a fence in which our prayers can then run wild. 
and frolicking in the green pasture of the prayer our Lord taught us to pray, we will find this prayer changing us. We will find this prayer changes us. It will have a shaping effect on us, helping us to yearn for the very things that God himself desires. So if your prayer life is anything like mine, more often a smoldering wick than it is a roaring fire, then start with me here this week with Jesus' instruction on how to pray, why we pray, and what to pray for. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word, the Lord's prayer, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have made us for yourself. God, you have made us to know you and to relate to you in communion, to be near to you. And in our sin, we run away. In our sin, we seek autonomy. In our sin, we isolate ourselves from you. And Jesus, your great son, the savior, our savior has come to bring us back to God, to bring us back to you, to bring us back in nearness and communion and fellowship that we might enjoy the adoption as children of God, to enjoy the fellowship with our father. And so we take these words of Jesus, we take this instruction on prayer and we say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Draw us near to yourself through this prayer. Help us to desire your desires, Lord. Help us to be like you and to be near you. Oh Jesus, teach us to pray. We ask this in your name, amen and amen. You may stand.